everybody wants to find yield these days. No secret. There are some innovative ways to do it, and we're joined by a couple of experts to talk about those today. Audie Apple, investment specialist, private and real assets, the Americas with DWS, and Mark Kishler, managing director of Northwestern Mutual Capital. Gentlemen, thanks for being on. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Stuart. So, Ani, I think the first question goes to you because it's not obvious how DWS and Northwestern Mutual Capital are related. So can you just kind of, just before we get to the main event, let's just talk about that real quick. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have the opportunity to partner with, you know, one of the leading private market investors in North America and Northwestern Mutual Capital. You know, as an $800 billion asset manager, you know, our clients are definitely participating in the secular migration from more traditional public strategies into private market capabilities. And one of the fastest growing subsets in that world is private credit. And Northwestern Mutual has a long history of being a successful investor in that space. And, and we're thrilled to be in that partnership. You know, we announced this about a year ago to identify and develop a number of private market opportunities. And our initial focus is in their junior capital capabilities given that our clients have that strong appetite for you. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is my first question. I think everybody's out here looking for yield. We all know that junior capital is one avenue. What's appealing about junior capital today versus public options like high yield or EMD or some other options? The way we look at it is over a long period of time, private assets have been very attractive relative to more liquid alternatives, whether that's in private equity or in private debt. And you know, since the, the years of the global financial crisis, we've had risk-free rates consistently grind lower and lower to the point now where even longer dated treasuries, the 10-year treasuries hovering around one and a half percent. I work at Northwestern Mutual Capital, manage large portfolios of private assets on behalf of a, a AAA rated insurance company that's got to hold a lot of debt in its portfolio. That's a very difficult environment when base yields are that low. So even going into credit risk sectors within the liquid markets, you know, you've got high yield bond yields trading at historical low levels now as well with, with double Bs around three and a half percent, single B rated credits around 5% and going into you know, even lower quality triple C bonds is yielding now about seven and a half percent. So these are dramatically, you know, in historical low yields. And what we've found, not just today, but over a long period of time, again, going into these private illiquid markets where you have to source this business, it's difficult to originate this product. It's difficult to underwrite. It's difficult to have a, a wide enough funnel. So you you think you're picking from a you know, a wide universe of opportunities and hopefully finding the best ones. But if you do all that right, the premium, if you will, over those liquid alternatives has been very consistent over a long period of time. And particularly now, as those private yields have been fairly resilient with these low rates in the public sector, we think these private debt opportunities are particularly attractive, both from an absolute return perspective and more importantly, from a relative value perspective. It's worth pointing out that your point about the funnel, right, and deal flow, because as Audie pointed out, there's a secular shift toward private assets, but you've been in this 
market for many years before it got popular. And I'm assuming that you're seeing a lot of deal flow that folks who are a little newer to the party may not be seeing. Is that fair? Or I mean, keep me honest there, but I'm, I'm assuming that. I will keep you honest. It's a very fair and on the money question because we think sourcing is really critical to this asset class. So our firm, Northwestern Mutual, has been in these private asset classes for well over 30 years. And to be clear on, on how we source this business, it's almost all from private equity-backed transactions. So we're running a very integrated model. We consider ourselves a direct lender into these transactions. We have developed long-standing deep relationships with high-quality private equity firms focused on the mid-market and the leveraged buyout space, predominantly in North America, but we do have relationships in the developed markets of Western Europe as well. And this integrated model that I'm referring to, what I mean by that is as an LP in these firms, so we've been investing balance sheet money from our insurance company for these 30 plus years as a limited partner into private equity funds. We think that's a great asset class on its own and it's consistently generated alpha or premiums versus the public liquid alternatives in the equity market. And then we use those relationships that we've built, those firms that we've underwritten to source our business from. So we're not waiting for the phone to ring from an intermediary. We're rather aggressively marketing our capabilities to be a partner of those private equity firms when they are then buying companies, when they're pursuing transactions with their pools of capital. We can be a very well-aligned partner providing the junior layers of capital that sits below what the banks have typically underwritten in the senior secured market, coming in and underwriting these junior or mezzanine tranches of the capital stack of a leveraged buyout and helping that sponsor get a transaction across the finish line. And what we get in return then is what we think is a very attractive asset. Again, that we've had to build a very deep sourcing network to be able to find. It's very consistent with the way that insurance companies operate on the other side of the balance sheet, which is you were here yesterday, you're here today, and you're going to be around tomorrow, chances are. So those longstanding relationships matter I mean, you really get to know these different groups. You're not just looking at a deal in isolation. So, you know, I think it's important to point out, I mean, just to level set the conversation. One of the things that would be helpful is, you know, people throw around the term MEZ. Can you just first explain what MEZ means, just in case everyone's not steeped in the tea? And why MEZ now? Sure. Just one quick note on that word relationships, because I did want to highlight that again, I think you're spot on. We think it's absolutely critical to have those relationships, not just to source the business, but to have, you know, for us, it's part of our underwriting. We have spent decades underwriting and finding the people that we want to work with in that private equity community. And then from their side of that relationship, working with them for an extended period of time, working on multiple transactions with them. Listen, this, this is increasingly a competitive market. There are a lot of people trying to do what we do. But what we've built up with those longstanding relationships is trust. These firms know that we can execute. They know that we're reliable. 
And also in this environment where a lot of firms are pursuing M&A platforms where they, they know that there's going to be a follow-on opportunity or maybe many of them, they want to know that they have partners that will be there with them going forward to your point about maintaining a relationship where we come back again and again and again. So a little detour there, but uh, circling back to the, the mezzanine question, you know, mezzanine historically was what we call subordinated debt in a private equity transaction. And that's all it is. It's a subordinated debt layer. It could be unsecured debt. It could be secured debt. Um, increasingly, a lot of this has a lien attached to it. It's part of the bank financing package. So there's be the first lien bank debt, which sits on the top of a capital structure, the most senior debt in a transaction. This subordinated or second lien debt would be part of that bank collateral package, but have a subordinated position to that first lien debt. So second lien debt could be considered mezzanine debt. That's typically structured with a floating rate cash coupon payable either quarterly or semi-annually, but has a, a LIBOR base rate and then a spread over that base rate to get your all-in quarterly or semi-annual coupon. And then as LIBOR rates change, your, your coupon will will change as well. And presumably in this low rate environment over an extended holding period, there's probably some upside to interest rates. Some of mezzanine could be unsecured though. And that's more the old fashioned mezzanine. And it's really still just subordinated debt, but will be unsecured. And that's typically has a fixed coupon rate and payable probably semi-annually. But the mezzanine word, it's, you know, I think came up years ago and it's sitting in a theater here in the in the mezzanine tier of that theater. So you're, you know, you're not down on the stage and you're not up in the in the upper balconies, but you're in that loge or that mezzanine layer of the theater, you know, putting that in terms of a, a capital stack for a transaction. And then obviously below the subordinated debt or the mezzanine sits the true common equity of a transaction, giving us a lot of support and credit enhancement below the debt that we own. That's very helpful. That's the best I've ever understood that. And I've done a number of these. Just to kind of touch on, you had mentioned where it resides in the capital stack. A question that comes to me is, why not lever senior debt to generate those returns? Audie, I don't know if that's a you question or if this is a Mark question. I'm just kind of throwing it back out. Yeah, go, go ahead, Mark. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, starting with an unlevered point of view, you know, we think senior loans are, are relatively attractive, certainly relative to the public called terms in the bond market. But even with that, you know, senior secured loans in these levered transactions are yielding less than 5% now uh, for most of the market, most of the addressable market. So if, if you're looking at private junior credit, that's maybe you know, picking a number yielding all in 12 to 13%. Before I get to the levered part of that question, just on, a, on an efficiency perspective, one of the ways we look at it is to generate a dollar of profit. You know, say you start with $100 to invest. And we invested in a junior capital portfolio. If you're going to earn 12.5% return just to pick up a base case there, you know, that's $12.5 million of profit. To get that same dollar amount of profit, you're going to need a lot more than $100 of senior debt. In fact, you're going to need two and a half times as much 
capital allocated to that asset class. Now, maybe less risky on the surface of things, maybe more addressable. But if your ultimate goal is to generate dollars of profit, you're going to have to allocate a lot of money to that portfolio to generate the same kind of profit that we're generating off these junior portfolios. So a segue to your question is, you know, what if you take that same $100 and buy a senior portfolio with leverage? And certainly we're seeing people offer that and seeing some of our competitors do that. We think it's mathematically possible. Now, the availability of that leverage from facility providers may be fleeting. It may not be always there over the life of your investment horizon. And you know, with our colleagues in Audi's group at DWS, we've done some analytical work. And we think, based on current market rates and some assumptions for how much that leverage would cost in terms of the interest rates charged, you need almost 300% leverage to generate a similar return from that senior portfolio versus an unlevered junior portfolio. Now, maybe you can get that. That's a pretty stretched level of leverage versus what we've seen on offer in the market for diversified senior portfolios. But even if you could get that leverage to try to match the returns, two risks that, that we've kind of identified in, in our analysis. One is, you know, the way I, I like to look at it is, you know, investors in senior credit are enjoying a senior position in each of those underlying deals. They are senior claim of that business and the assets in that business. Once you put leverage on a portfolio, you've now converted that senior claim into an equity position. Someone else, now a third party lender, has a priority claim on all of your assets and you have effectively become the equity in that transaction. And the other risk that we've identified is the risk of drawdown. You know, most managers are going to have to put evaluation on their assets, either quarterly or monthly. And with fluctuations in the market, discount rates, depending how these assets are valued, there will be some volatility and some variability from period to period. Any lender into these portfolios is going to have a concept of an advance rate or an over-collateralization covenant such that they're comfortable that their debt that they're providing against that portfolio is amply covered by the loans in that fund at any point in time. So where I'm going with that, if there's a reduction in the value of that collateral at any point in time, that advance rate or that over-collateralization covenant will likely get breached. And that drawdown to hit that kind of breach in this example that we're using where you need about 300% leverage is a low single digit of price depreciation. So a really thin margin for error, if you will, there. Now those errors can be cured, but to cure those errors now comes at a cost to the investor in that portfolio. The simplest way to cure that default is to inject more cash equity into the trade. But now you've changed the mathematics. You started with $100 allocated to this portfolio. Now you're having to prop it up with additional investment capital, which will deteriorate your ultimate returns. The other way to cure that problem would be to sell assets out of that portfolio until that leverage ratio is back in compliance. Now, presumably, you're selling those assets at an inopportune time when valuations are low. So, you know, either way you look at it, a risk to the investor and a likely lower than base case return is a result of that. So, again, a long-winded answer, but 
we think it's mathematically possible on paper to replicate the returns of junior capital by levering a senior portfolio, but we think there are significant risks in doing so. Yeah, the conversion of your position into an equity position is a really interesting point that I had never considered, to be honest with you. So I thank you for that. Just kind of going back a question, I skipped one. How do you think about diversification in a junior capital portfolio? Sure. So the short answer is we think diversification is extremely important. Listen, so junior capital, you know, the way we construct portfolios for our insurance company parent, again, this is all sourced from private equity-backed transactions. We buy a lot of cash pay junior debt, which we were talking about earlier, the mezzanine debt could be floating rate, could be fixed rate. That's two thirds of what we do year in, year out. We also buy some hold co pick securities where we're not earning cash interest, but we're making ultimately a higher return by buying those investments where our interest or dividends accrue over a period of time until we're either refinanced or the company is sold and our securities are redeemed. And then we, we will occasionally buy small pieces of co-invest equity that we attach alongside these debt securities if we're underwriting these and we think the equity story is particularly attractive. This lay that out because that's what we consider to be junior capital, these very diversified portfolios across asset type, cash paid junior debt being the ballast to that portfolio, and then smaller amounts of these hold co-pick securities and a, a very small amount of equity. Given our funnel, given our sourcing network, given that we work with roughly 100 private equity sponsors globally, and again, for us globally is North America and Western Europe, we're sourcing between 400 and 500 unique investment opportunities on an annual basis. We've got the balance sheet of a AAA rated insurance company with $250 billion of assets to deploy. So we can be a very material underwriter of these opportunities and take down large positions. And with that, with that big deal funnel, while being very selective, we can construct very diversified portfolios. On an annual basis, we're booking between 25 and 35 new platform junior capital investments on an annual basis. So over a, an extended period of time, four or five years for our insurance company parent, we're building portfolios that have well over 100 investments in those portfolios. It's really one of the lessons learned over the years. You know, while we do have some equity upside, and that's why I raised that point of the small equity, this is not a private equity portfolio. This is a private debt portfolio where that upside is limited. It's somewhat capped. Really what we're trying to capture is the yield that this portfolio generates and that premium that this private credit portfolio generates versus those more easily invested public alternatives. But to capture that premium, you have to avoid defaults. You have to avoid losses. And to do that, you know, we've got our underwriting model. We've underwritten the, the general partners, the private equity firms we want to do business with. We've got a deep team of people. We source a wide universe of opportunities. We sift through that with a high level of selectivity, hopefully find the most resilient credits, the best structured deals we can find. And then with that, build very big diversified portfolios where our exposure to any single credit in the portfolio is one or 2%. So, you know, this is a risky business. These are not treasury bonds. 
things happen. Also, we can underrate an opportunity. I think it's extremely well protected. You know, but things change in those industries. Management teams change. Companies make mistakes. You know, I won't say the the S word, but stuff happens. And um, because of that, we we like to have a highly diversified portfolio to avoid those negative results that happen from time to time, impacting our overall returns. So with that high level diversification, we're confident we can generate very, very consistent returns at the portfolio level. So can you talk, and you have mentioned this a little bit, but I just want to kind of touch on it, you and Audi, either one, what are the current trends shaping the industry right now, whether that's pricing, whether it's structure, What's going on specifically today? Sure. There's a lot going on. You know, again, we source virtually all of our business from private equity. There's a lot going on in the private equity world to start with. I believe it's part of just the overall maturation of this industry that 30 years ago would have been considered more emerging or nascent. Now, this is private equity is a mature industry. You've got really well-defined and developed secondary funds where People are now trading their limited partnership interests in private equity firms. Some of those secondary fund operators purchasing stakes of these GPs to help them with their long-term planning and business profiles. We had the advent of SPACs in the public market, which create other exit alternatives for private equity sponsors. You also have the advent of these continuation funds within the private equity world where you know, increasingly in this kind of environment where private equity sponsors are having a hard time finding attractive opportunities at reasonable prices, some of their best assets are ones they already hold. And they're finding ways to hold those for an extended period of time, either with these continuation vehicles or raising separate pools of capital that are considered more long dated holding funds. So a lot going on within the private equity space, you know, in addition to them just continuing to raise capital. I think there's now, I saw a stat, almost $5 trillion of AUM globally in the private equity market with fundraising of approaching a trillion dollars annually. So just increasingly becoming a bigger and bigger part of the overall financial world. And with that, you know, the private debt market continues to mature and evolve as well. There's been a lot of capital flowing in over the last several years. I think it's primarily for two reasons. One is this continued and sustained low interest rate environment that we've all been living with globally now for an extended period of time. And you couple that with a relatively benign credit environment for the last several years, and capital has naturally flown into some of these more illiquid sectors to try to find yield. That has an impact on pricing, clearly. You know, more capital coming into a sector will generally drive down pricing. We've seen that, but it's somewhat bifurcated, if you will. A lot of the, you know, actually the predominant amount of the capital that has flown into private credit over the last few years has really been concentrated in some of the larger managers. And with that concentration, those larger managers now have extremely large pools of capital that needs to get deployed. They will naturally move towards larger transactions. And so you've got that competition in the larger end of the market. In a relatively benign credit environment, you have some of the underwriting banks that would have historically underwritten junior debt now coming back 
into that market with the view to syndicate those investments to investors. That's another form of competition. But what we've found is most of that new capital, is, again, is focused on the larger end of the market. And then on the smaller end of the market, you've got a whole host of, of competitors. You've got local SBICs, you've got BDCs, you've got funds, you've got regional banks that tend to focus you know, in their backyards and, and focus on that smaller end of the market. And where we focus, you know, how we started this conversation was a description of the middle market, how we go to market and really where we're focused. So it's kind of, you know, in the sweet spot as we pursue these opportunities, there's going to be competition everywhere and that's going to affect pricing. And we're in that period of time now. But, you know, sometimes pricing trends can be short-term and capital flow related, as I've been alluding to. Some of the longer-term trends, though, are, again, you know, this AUM concentration with some investment managers getting extremely large. And part of that capital flow has been the growth of a Unitronch product. That's certainly taken some market share over the last several years. Can you explain what that is just for the... Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as we were talking earlier, a typical levered buyout transaction will have senior debt, which was historically issued by commercial and investment banks. We have the junior debt or the mezzanine layer where institutions like mine have participated and you've got the common equity at the bottom of that capital stack. What Unitronch effectively does is provides all of that leverage in one tranche. So it takes what would have been the first lien senior secured bank debt and the junior debt and bundles it all together and offers that as a single loan to the private equity firm that then's buying a company. So effectively staples together the senior and the junior debt into one tranche with higher pricing that would be generally offered as a senior only loan, but significantly lower pricing than the junior, trying to come up with a, you know, a, a blended rate of return. And I think you know, what's attractive about that from the issuer's perspective is efficiency. Now they can work with one lender and a lot of that money, again, is, is in uh, hands of very large asset managers with significant underwriting scale. So it can be efficient for an equity sponsor, but then there's also no tension. Now there's no buffer, if you will. Now all of the debt is held by one institution. And while that may be efficient, a lot of private equity sponsors that we've encountered you know, that's a point of nervousness now. So they'd much rather have different holders of different debt tranches just to create some tension in that structure. And also one of the things historically that junior capital has provided is, is effectively a, a cushion, you know, to account for things that, that might happen over the life period of an investment. Operations that don't, you know, hum as we thought they would, synergies that are not realized as quickly integrations of acquisitions that don't happen as smoothly as you'd like. It's nice to have a cushion in there to be able to provide support during those inevitable down periods with an operating company. And that's what Mezzanine has historically been able to provide. Thank you. So from the perspective of PE sponsors, what are some of the key things to be looking for? And more specifically, you had mentioned the amount of AUM in the private equity market, which I think the general consensus is that valuations are somewhat lofty, right? So is it more than just price? 
I think it is. I mean, it's certainly price matters and it might matter the most on a list of considerations that a private equity sponsor is going to be looking at with their financing sources. But we've, you know, I go back to this word relationships and, you know, so many of these processes increasingly are fast paced, not just for lenders coming into them, but for the private equity sponsors, the access to management, the access to information, the deadlines that are required to submit bids. So as private equity sponsors are pursuing their diligence, getting to meet management teams, really trying to figure out whether they want to buy a company and live with it for the next five to seven years, they absolutely need financing to get those transactions done. But to make it simple, that the financing may be not be the number one priority given these short time frames. So they want a reliable source of financing. They want to know if they're bringing somebody into a transaction that if we can satisfy these four or five diligence items, you can get us the information that we've requested. We've expressed interest in providing this amount of capital under these terms, that once we get to that finish line, we're going to be good for that, that financing. They really don't want execution risk, given all those other considerations that they have to deal with, again, under a very fast-paced timetable to win a transaction. So I think working with people that they have an existing relationship with, that they've done other transactions with, that have an experienced team that knows these industries, knows what to look for in underwriting, can create that, that reliable execution. So again, I think relationships are critical. You mentioned the high price valuation environment. Absolutely the case. You know, High quality assets are going from a historical perspective, very high multiples of EBITDA in the current market. And so I think because of that, you know, most of the sponsors that, that we work with and have long-term relationships with have to some extent gone back to old-fashioned private equity and are really looking not just for a trade, but looking for a platform, looking for a good management team, looking for a, a core business that's got the infrastructure that they can use to then go out and make follow-on acquisitions with. So increasingly are willing to pay what they know is a premium price for that first platform investment, but then they have a strategy to go out and pursue follow-on acquisitions such that all of their capital, when it's added up at the life of that deal, will come in at a more reasonable, blended enterprise valuation multiple. And with that, you know, it gets back to the relationships again. Given that their strategy for most of these transactions is to pursue follow-on opportunities, they're probably going to need additional financing. So they really want to know, are you not just good for that initial transaction, but we don't want, you know, when we're pursuing acquisitions, we don't want to have to go and redo our whole capital structure, find new senior and junior lenders. They're really trying to identify people that can be there in a reliable way on that initial platform investment. But then as they pursue those follow-on acquisitions, you know, have financing sources that not just know the company can move quickly, but also have additional capital that they're willing to deploy in those transactions. So you've been at this a while, uh, as have I. What's the biggest lesson you learned over the last 20 years investing in private credit? Yeah, that's, uh, that's is that your zinger question, Stuart? It is. Uh, Okay, it so is, and you have that. to only it only can be one lesson. 
I do have I do have follow on I do have a couple of in the ask me anything category that are coming. So this is this is still uh, middle of the fairway for junior capital. Got it. Okay, I'm going to violate your one answer rule. Okay, um, really, because I I think it's really a couple things. It's first and foremost is just having discipline in the underwriting process. You know, like you said, I've I've been doing this. For a long time, the partners that I work with that comprise our investment committee at, at Northwestern Mutual Capital, we've been all working together for a long, long period of time and have, have booked almost a thousand individual transactions together. With that, I've looked at multiple thousands of opportunities. So, you know, you learn, you learn what kind of business models can be resilient. And you'll learn that looking at historical results is great, but you also have to have that forward-looking perspective. Is this business positioned well? Why should it continue to perform the way it has? What's the competitive environment? What are their points of differentiation? What, what's the moat that they put around their business? Why will this business be resilient under the next economic downturn? And we never tr- can predict those downturns or what's going to drive it, but what we have learned is they're coming. They will always come again. Every few years, something will happen, whether it's a normal economic cycle or more recently, you know, with, with the COVID pandemic, something that was very disruptive to the market. Some, something's going to happen every couple of years. So you really need to be choosing the most resilient credits you can find. You know, and part of that's just how do you underwrite? You know, we've talked about our relationship-oriented business, which we think is critical, dealing with private equity sponsors that have capabilities that we know quite well, that we can source a big wide funnel of opportunities from and then pick the most attractive. I won't go into details about how we underwrite. We're looking at cash flow and, and pro forma numbers and things like that are that are fairly technical. But w- what I'll sum up with is, is that point of diversification again. You know, again, given that these credit portfolios are comprised of assets that have limited upside, you know, really you want to avoid the downside. And the strongest way to do that after you underwrite the best you can is having a massively diversified portfolio. That's good stuff. This is the Ask Me Anything portion of the program. So I want to take you back to a day that I believe you'll remember. This is the day that you graduated from your undergraduate institution. Regardless of the festivities and revelry that took place the night before, you are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in your cap and gown. Now, your name is sort of middle of the alphabet, so it wasn't a terrible wait. Now you've gone up the stairs, you're waiting. The dean or whoever it may be reads your name, the crowd goes crazy. And then you go over to the president of the college and you shake hands, get a quick photo op, they hand you your diploma, and down the stairs you go. At the bottom of the stairs, you run into yourself today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? I say to that young, inexperienced, maybe overconfident, naive, soon-to-be professional, is to uh, don't be too overconfident. Try to learn what you don't know. Know what you don't know. I can't remember which Greek philosopher said that that was the path to wisdom, and I'm paraphrasing. But that's maybe one of the things that I've hopefully gleaned over over the last 30 or so years is that, you know, there are a lot of smart people out there. And just because we're also part of that group, but, you know, not everyone knows everything. And you can, there's so much you can learn from other people 
And, you know, part of this is diversity, which is getting a lot more attention these days and I've come to appreciate it. There are so many people that you're going to come across in your career, in your professional life that have completely different backgrounds, different perspectives, different experiences. And while you may have nothing in common with them on paper, there's a lot you can learn from most of those people that you interact with. I love that answer. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. I appreciate that, especially, you know, that we don't warn these things because Audie Apple, your name starts with A. So you didn't have nearly as much time to think as you just got from me asking Mark first. What would you tell your 21 year old self? The reason I asked this question, by the way, is because I taught for years and students really value your insights. They want to know your journey and how you got where you are. And so when looking back, and you remember how naive you were and how you thought the world worked and you find out later how it actually works. I always feel like it's something that we can impart on, you know, sort of paying it forward. So, Audie, what do you say, man? What would you tell your 21-year-old self? I think there may be some overlap with what Mark suggested, but I think I would annotate or I'd sort of put up front, you've really just started learning, right? You know, you never stop learning. I'm still learning, you know, just in this partnership with NMC, to put it in real-time context. I've had an opportunity from learning from Mark Kistler, who's been, you know, in this junior capital business for a couple of decades. And, you know, if you can find some intellectual provocation and continue that thirst for knowledge, it'll pay tremendous dividends. And, you know, the thing that, you know, I would tie back to what Mark said, which is critical, and I think one of the things that we appreciate about our partners in this endeavor is, Always have a sense of humility. Always understand that you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, you should tap the brakes, you know, hear some other perspectives. You know, hubris will sink, you know, some mighty ships. <laughs> That's great advice. Adi, Mark, my pleasure. It was great to have you both on. Thanks for coming on with us. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. I always am the one, it's unfair because I'm the one who always learns the most on these deals. So thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Podcast.